Welcome back to Geek Life, Panamanga.com's very own podcast. I'm JP. As always with me is my fearless co-host, Joe. I see you got a podcast here, eh? <laughs> Unfortunately, the Brian can't be with us today because he decided to eat something that was crawling with parasites, and he's now on his knees puking in the bathroom, luckily at another house, otherwise he'd be making noise the whole time. <laughs> we kicked him out. You know, priorities. Well, that's good. <laughs> with us today again, we have Neuro. Hello. And back from AskAMetalHead.com, we have Justin. Hey, guys. And then with us today, special guest, instead of just coming and doing only an interview and then scooting away, John R. Foltz is with us for the whole podcast, which is very fun. Thanks, Thanks for having John. me, man. It's great absolutely, to be here. absolutely. We're looking forward to hanging out and talking and, and hearing all about your new ebook, Revelations of Zhang. You got it. Very excited to talk about that. But first, a little housekeeping. First up on housekeeping, I wanted to let you guys know that a couple weeks ago we went to the Croc. Con, or I guess Comic Croc is what they were calling. Yes. Rather, rather cute name. It was at the Croc Center, which is the Salvation Army over in Sassoon, California. And it was really great. It Lots was definitely, it was the first one. Mm-hmm. Right. So it was small, but we had a lot of fun. I think we had a lot of fun. It was yeah. a, a micro con. Yeah, a little micro con. It's neat because normally cons cost quite a bit of money to get started. And the people that run the Croc Center actually came and approached John over a waterfront to help them put something together. And so there was nobody organizing the con and paying for the space. They basically just welcomed us in, which was amazing. Yeah. One of the coolest things that happened at Comic Rock was that we had a bunch of really cool panels. A little underattended, unfortunately, but yeah, it's the first time that Comic Rock happened. I think Mm -hmm. that it'll only go up from there. But we had some really great speakers, one of which was John. Thank you. And John jumped into this epic panel that started out with one person and just gobbled up the next three people, including John. And it was really neat. And so I'm currently, at the time of this recording, working on mixing those together, and we'll have them up on the site for you guys to listen to. And that one in particular is excellent. I think I told my life story during that. (laughs) I think think many people told their life story (laughs) between that. I mean, it ended up being about an hour and a half, and it was supposed to be a half hour each person. Yeah. Yeah. I came in and sat in on, on it for a few minutes. Well, not on it, but I came in as a spectator, and it was like... The history of comics version one. It was like it was a college class. I mean, I was sitting there going, "Wow!" Well, it was cool. They they had a gentleman who is a talent scout for Marvel there, and so used to be used to be a talent scout, right? Eighties, I think. And it was fun because the panel was supposed to be about breaking into the comic scene, but it very quickly devolved into just a bunch of stories from the inside of the comic community, which was or the Mm. comic industry. Which yeah, was really fun. You had an inker from Top Cow, Joe yep. Weems, and you had Neil, who is an artist and a former talent scout, and you had me, who's seen the dark underbelly of the comics business briefly <laughs> and chose to go elsewhere. <laughs> it was such a good panel. And, and there were several other really good panels. We actually, Pandamanga, did a short panel, Joe and I, talking about podcasting yeah. appropriately. So, yeah, we had a really good time, and I'm looking forward to sharing all of those things with you guys. We've got some a gallery from some of the pictures that Joe went around taking over there, and a bunch of really good lectures for you guys to listen to, or I guess panels is the appropriate term. So check out events.pandamanga.com and look for Comic Croc. It should be the most recent event on the page. I think you have to call it panel since it's a comic. Yeah, that's kind of... Oh, oh yeah. Ha, ha, ha. Pun. Pun. All right. <laughs> just punned all over the microphone. I totally oh. punned on the microphone. I just got that, man. <laughs> <laughs> and then that's it for housekeeping. <laughs> Let's go ahead and move on to our indie spotlight of the week. This week, we're going to talk about Adventuresome by Keith McLean, which, first of all, Keith, nice last name. <laughs> that's freaking awesome. <laughs> that's just one letter shy from being Mr. Clean. That's pretty, oh, yeah. that's pretty much awesome. Anyway, so Keith McLean's comic, 
Adventuresome, which you can find at adventuresome.ca, which means he's Canadian. Which uh, you can, oh, that explains it. Yeah, you can tell sometimes. <laughs> you can t- sometimes. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's a pretty fun comic actually. I came yeah. across him on Twitter. Surprise, surprise. This is kind of just where I find everything these days. It's like all I do with my free time is just Twitter. <laughs> we all uh, read a little bit about it, and I wanted to talk a bit about the the writing and the humor. It's definitely a sort of slice of life humor, sort of wacky comedy sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But also, it can be sort of dry humor sometimes and then there's a couple of strips that get really dark like out of nowhere just out of left field just in amongst these sort of funny light-hearted slice of life sort of panels and then the next thing you know it's just really dark and there's almost no joke there and it's just like whoa what was that about yeah did you come across any of that i yeah the the most recent story arc that he did with the sidekick that died and went to the afterlife. Mm-hmm. A couple of strips of that. He had, I guess, 12 strips or so worth of it. A couple of those were really dark. Yeah. Him trying to deal with, oh, I died in my last fight? <laughs> wow, that sucks. Well, it sounds like we might be struggling a little bit to describe it. So why don't we just turn to Keith himself and we'll go ahead and read his About Us page. This is awesome. So he has adventuresome, and he basically describes it like a dictionary page. That's that's pretty great. Adventuresome. Adjective. Given to adventures or running risks. Noun. A pretty okay webcomic by a guy who is the kind of guy who you might say, oh yeah, that guy, he's okay, I guess, about. Maybe invite him to the movies with you guys or something. He'd totally see that movie, even though the newspaper said it was only okay. <laughs> uh, welcome to adventuresome.ca, home of the webcomic by the same name. It is drawn by Keith McLean, a graphic design student from Toronto, Ontario, who has been drawing silly things since his fingers were functional and had stopped tingling from that accident with the wall socket. (laughs) (laughs) This comic is a collection of the silly things he sees now that he can cross the street by himself. And the more silly things that pop up into his head, like a clown riding a bike that is made of smaller clowns or a koala bear. So you can see how this is like really kind of random. <laughs> it's bizarre. It, you know, this is really more of a comic strip than a comic book. Oh, meaning yeah. that he tries different gags, he tries different things. It reminds me a lot of a of a stand up comedian's act done through comics because that's he just deals a really with, good way to explain it. That's a yeah, great way yeah. to explain it because different that's, yeah, topics yeah. come up and sometimes he follows them a little while and then he forgets it and he without a segue he moves on to something else. You see that a lot in in the web comic format you really do this reminds mm. me a lot of the format of horde of neurons yeah, yeah just this exactly just this brain dump of all the things that he seems to have an opinion about uh, that it's like oh that was weird and that was kind of funny and i can spin that into a comic and yeah. absolutely no real interest in having recurring characters there is or, there's there's a couple but, a couple but mm-hmm. similarly <laughs> it's 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 mostly just kind of like blah just whatever right, right. You know? and the he darkness, loves ghosts yeah. the you know darkness that is this. sort of a theme that you were talking about is you see that with comedians Comedians seem to all have a dark side. You know, it's like tragedy is the flip side to humor. Right, and, you right. know, the mm-hmm. two overlap. And you can see that in a lot of these strips. Yep. I, I kind of feel like there's a love-hate relationship with this comic because so many of the strips are hilarious. Like, laugh yeah. out loud, brilliant. But then there's some of them that I'm not going to say are bad or fall flat on their face or anything. They just... They're just odd. The they joke were, doesn't land. Yeah, the right. joke just doesn't quite land. Or and, it lands north of the border. Right, and we, yeah, and we just don't get it. That's kind of my expectation. I'm thinking that yeah. it's a Canadian thing. It's got to be because there's enough jokes that are just kind of like, what? Yeah. <laughs> that I'm thinking that there's got to be a, a, just a different 
perception of delivering humor mm-hmm. over there, you know, in some That's way. That's a good point. It, it reminded me again of watching a comedian and sometimes the jokes don't land, but hopefully the next one will make you laugh. Yeah. You know? Well, he's all, I, I, you know, in reading, I don't know as many as I read, which was quite a few, he's all over the place. And so I think some of it's going to be relevant to you in, in one way or another. Some sure, of it's sure, going to sure. be funny to you and some of it may not necessarily may not hit. There's a few that I hit that they got me and I was like, this is really funny. Right. And then there's a few that was like, I could see why that was funny, but mm, you kind of missed yeah. me a little bit, you know? And yeah. Then, I think there's this pressure too, when you got to have like a release schedule, you got to come up yeah. with something to fill the gap, whether you're ready or not. And to. he releases He was put him out lot. twice a week. So, I mean, that's a, that's a breakneck pace. Yeah. Lots yeah. of different art. I don't know if you want to talk about art yet, but we, I we, noticed we, lots of different style, but very similar. Just sometimes... They look like watercolor. Sometimes they look like what I would consider like your standard web comic kind yeah, of. Yeah, it, it definitely evolves. And again, that's one of the cool things about web comics is yeah, that yeah. it's often someone's early efforts as a comic artist, and so you get to see a lot of growth. But it's still, still design wise, like very solid. Yeah, right yeah. from the very beginning, you can tell that it's the same artist, and it just gets better and better. It doesn't start in a scattered, awkward place and then come together. It's already well put together, and it really is just like a polish. That kind of sheen that comes over it towards the later stuff. For me, one of the things I really liked about this comic was there was enough. Actually, that's not even fair. There was more than enough to keep me just like, I, I can't wait to see what. Okay, what's the next one? All right. right. What, yeah. Like mm-hmm. I wanted to that see what the random button is. So yeah, tempting, the random. Right? <laughs> and then there are some real gems. So I've got a couple of them saved here. The one, how to put this, the one that made me think, okay, we've got to talk about this comic was this one. <laughs> It's called Hero. It's one of the really early ones. In the first panel, there's what looks like a ghost, and it says, I am released, human, for your service. I will make true one wish. What is thy command? Oh, yeah, I know, which one. I know exactly which one this is. <laughs> and the next one, it's got, it's got a picture of the knight thinking with his, his, his thumb, and four, uh, thumb and pointer finger on his chin. And then the final panel is a newspaper, and it says, Every boob suddenly huge, local yeah. knight reunited like a million times. <laughs> I think I just started howling that with laughter. I was like, yes. And so, I mean, and that was maybe three strips in from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. That's a good sign. The, and the thing is, like, the punchline is in the third panel, but there's some amazing, clever way that he gets that panel in there without you skipping ahead to it. And so the punchline in a lot of these is still a surprise and it's on this. I mean, it's right there on the page, right? Because sometimes it's hard to hold back a punchline when Mm -hmm. you're doing it with a comic because it's (laughs) by its very definition, it's sequential art. And so everything is lined up next to each other. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to kind of peek ahead, but he does a really good job with that. I've noticed that a lot of them are a subtle punchline and he actually leans pretty heavily on having you read some kind of flyer or a newspaper or a book or something like that in the last panel. I mean, I've seen it over and over again and the, the quite a bit that I've read and it's, it's slick. Like yeah, it's really, some slick. really cool stuff in there. Yeah. yeah it's, it's just so random too. So it's at that last panel, you don't know where it's going to land. Yeah. Uh, my favorite one was the crime dog and you're like, Oh, crime dog. Does he fight crime? No, he does crime. <laughs> <laughs> he steals some guy's wallet. He, uh, he, he buys drugs with it and ends up shooting a bunch of people. Oh, firing a bunch of bullets at the cops. Oh, gosh. Oh, Another one of the ones that had to be cracking up. It uh, starts out with this guy at work. Uh, and then some people are walking by his cubicle and he says, hey, Parker, you coming to Roger's party tonight? And then his internal monologue, oh, no, my boss's birthday party is tonight. If I want that promotion, i to make sure I'm not a complete screw up. This is my only shot. And it says, so later. All right, boys, time for charades. Parker, you're up. 
Come on, Parker, what's the hold up? <laughs> yeah. Get to it. And and then the last page, again, having you read yeah. essentially a card, the last page, it says criminal erotica. Right. It's it's what he's looking <laughs> right, at exactly. first person yeah. for and, his charade. And yeah. and, and, and he's I, standing there sweating. Like, right. Like, I was God, laughing so hard. And, but then the the more I looked at this this particular comic, I thought to myself, God, I wish he did just one more frame. I want to know. Yeah, that, <laughs> what, right. How do you right. act out criminal erotica? Right. That's what you call a thinker, that, yeah. that kind of joke. Because I remember after that thinking, how would you act that out? And right. I went, oh, that's the joke. You right, can't exactly. act that out without yeah. looking like a complete you scumbag. You have to break you know? it to each word, but it would be funny to see the reaction after that. I would have guessed it or something. I would have seen some kind of interpretation that he had. Criminal she's, erotica. She's like, I don't know, punching the couch while he's humping it or something. Like, I just, I'm just trying to imagine how that well, would have to be criminal. That's the, be- that's <laughs> yeah. the terrible that's part of it. It. Yeah, it's, or cut to afterwards to against the, bo- the law, or cut to afterwards where the boss is like, "Get out!" Yeah, this is the last panel. <laughs> yeah, you could have done something like that. Everybody's Actually, just horrified. I think the next panel, if he would have drawn it, would have been the guy sitting there in a suit in his new office. <laughs> yes, you could have got like the promotion. There you, go. you know, they were stunned by his criminal erotica. Yeah, <laughs> oh, man. yeah. That uh, there's some real brilliance in this comic. Yeah, real good. true mm. brilliance in this comic. Definitely. But just like anything that is a random stream of ideas and very slice of life, it does not have a consistent level of humor. It jumps all over the place, and that's on purpose. And that's one of the nice things about slice of life comics is that you don't have to deliver a hilarious side-splitting punchline every single time. It can be a thoughtful observation about something. It can be kind of a humorous, like, huh, that's sort of weird. Or, or, yeah, I always thought this way about this particular subject. It works really well, and I think that it gives the the comic artist and writer, more particularly, a little more flexibility. And instead of having to pigeonhole themselves, and I have to make a funny joke every single time. Yeah. Because that sounds, especially with a release rate, like twice a week, son of a bitch, that'd be hard to come up with something funny every single week, twice like that. Yeah. And then, oh no, I'm, I read uh, questionable content. Yeah. He releases five days a week and tries to work the punchline in every single day. And does it work very regularly? Or? Not always. Yeah. Sometimes it's a but um Sometimes mm-hmm. it's total laugh out loud and sometimes it's like, Wah, wah, huh. wah. Yeah, okay. I think the only comic I can think of that really hits the mark almost every time is XKCD, but that's because there's three different people doing it, mm-hmm. and they actually alternate each day. It's a different person, and so and they they come out I think every day of the week or close to it. Yeah. But the beauty of it is, is that somebody only has to come out with something every three days in comparison to every day. I can only imagine how rough it would be if you were the only writer for something and you had to come up with a punchline joke five days a week and put it into a comic (laughs) yeah very ambitious so is there anything else we wanted to touch on about writing wise or humor wise before we moved on to talking a little bit about the art oh man i skipped ahead (laughs) what no (laughs) i already talked about the art i'm sorry trust me i've got some things to say (laughs) sometimes you know i put the cart before the horse (laughs) well one of the things that really stood out to me right away when i hit that first button and started looking through it, you mm-hmm. could tell that he was hand-drawing things on paper, actually inking on paper. It's very common these days with comics to do, or still very common these days with comics, to do your pencils and your roughs still you know, by hand, paper, pencil, and then scan those in and then ink over that. That's one of the cleanest ways to still incorporate an actual pencil-paper drawing experience into the whole routine. Mm. A lot of us are starting to move just to total digital workflow. It's cheaper, faster, 
and cheap in many senses of the word, I guess, but it works when you're doing something that you're really under a time crunch. Yeah. But I always find it super refreshing when somebody still has a, some piece of their comic making process analog, because that's not something that I have the luxury of doing right now. And I miss that. And especially the more that they do in that traditional style, the traditional actual media, I think that it adds something more to comics that is lost in that perfection of line quality and color and everything that you get on a computer. Yeah. And early on, you could tell that he's actually using felt pens, like a micron pen or something like that, because there's, there's just this, there's this look to it. You can see a little bit of bleed in the paper. You can see sort of a inconsistency in the line, you know, there's a little shakiness to the line. And, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a, in a very endearing, charming sort of way, mm-hmm. you know, it it's the it different real. Yeah. It's the difference between watching a cartoon that's done total digitally or something that's still done with like cells. There's mm-hmm. just something about that that just looks good. That is just warm and welcoming. You know, yeah. these strips look like something that, you would see like in high school somebody drawing on their in their notebook. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a, a bit charm of charm in them, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, it's funny that you mentioned that in particular because as we're sitting here, not that I'm not paying attention, but I'm sort of randoming through it because I'm still re- I'm still really enjoying it. But <laughs> one of my favorite characters that he writes is is uh, the Adventures of the Knight who was a bread, which really <laughs> right? isn't that amazing. Up, right? I'm like, he's, I love that. One. He's a slice of bread, but I just happen to pull up this particular panel which is exactly what you're talking about and as i look at it like the undiscerned untrained you know metalhead eye i look at it and i go oh crap you're right he's actually it looks like he drew like drew this out and it looks like you know not magic marker but you know yeah it's felt it's, it's the felt marker yeah, exactly right and then he scanned it or something i mean that's what i would look when i see this or he's got it really he's really good at whatever photoshop or whatever well you can't you can simply not I mean, as long as you've got a, a good a good eye for it, on some level, you can simulate that with certain programs. But at the end of the day, there's just there's no way to really truly reproduce that random look of actual paper grain. And- I think there's something about the way that paper sits on glass when it's scanned. The light hits it in such a way. That's why you see the little minor striations and stuff. Maybe that's mm-hmm. what it is that you pick up with your natural eye. Mm. And we've seen it so many times, just you don't even think about it. But yeah, I don't think you can duplicate that. Well, I mean, I'm sure you probably could. You can you can try to reproduce it and you can get yeah, pretty damn close, it. but it's just not the, the same. I think it's, you got no soul if you're relying on uh, computer tools to render for you. You know, it, there's soul the, in a pencil meets a, when a graphite meets a piece of paper. There's soul. It's like jazz. You know, it's yeah, like yeah. it's like what jazz musicians used to say. It's got no soul, man. Right. You well, know? I think that uh, I find myself longing to put pen and pencil to paper even if i at this point am doing total digital workflow for all the comics i'm doing because i have a short turnaround time and i just got to get it done Mm -hmm. and i need to rely on things like control z i need to rely on you know that sort of stuff and having layers and and all that that speeds the process up not that i couldn't do it this at at a similar level of quality the traditional way Mm -hmm. but there'd be much more severe repercussions for making mistakes and when you have all the time in the world and you're just making it and when it's ready, it's ready, you have that luxury and you can enjoy that process. But for me, I have to do it fast. Yeah. And But I, but you're right, John. I find myself really missing that. And so the, I'm always sketching quality. and goofing around in my yeah. in my sketchbooks and stuff. Yeah. And, and it's the still, only way I can keep that soul. And I think you're right. Most you artists storyboard. 
pen and paper. Yep. Yeah, I still, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think most artists today do that, right? They they start with a pencil and paper, and then they digitize it, and from there, it's like anything goes. Exactly. That's it's 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 neat to see that that he at least early on. Later on, it's pretty clear that he's doing everything on, or at least the inks on the computer at that point. You, mm-hmm. There's a very Photoshop kind of look to the line. Uh, which mm-hmm. isn't bad. I'm just saying you can tell, mm-hmm. and uh, and and very likely he got to the point where he's like, "Shit, this is taking too long." <laughs> <laughs> or you know, maybe he got a maybe somebody gave him a kick-ass birthday present. You never know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, really, you know, absolutely. How how can I do this faster, be more efficient, and still get quality? Because if the quality is going to suffer because you don't have time to do it and you have to do it, I, I would almost rather you say, "Yeah, move to, move to whatever it is that gets you." The best of both of those worlds yeah. where you have the quality and the time to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's on a theme. I was curious, uh, thinking about this week, uh, how that sometimes um, inspiration for art, our muse, sometimes comes from that new tool, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you yeah, get a yeah, new yeah. toy and so, you're brought back to, oh, I want to use that for a project. Oh, I got just the right one in mind. I don't know how many times I buy a new pen because I'm curious about it or just want to play with it and next thing i know i'm drawing more than normal because i just want to play with it <laughs> you know uh, and it's yeah. just the same way with anything like that especially artistically you get into you get a light table and it's like oh, what can i dream up to need a light table for because i just want to play with it <laughs> yeah but anyway back to the comic one of the things that really stood out to me was that and this is common in a lot of comics these days and i would argue very overused is the putting the texture overlay on the computer. It's common to do coloring on computers. It's slicker and less expensive and all that sort of stuff. All the things that computers bring to the table, but it has an almost too perfect look to it. And so people very heavily rely on adding some kind of a texture overlay that gives it that paper grainy look or whatever. And it helps to keep some of that charm, but eventually there's still sort of a artificial quality to it. Mm -hmm. And he did it so tastefully. Keith's way of doing it at times is so incredibly tasteful that I had a hard time telling whether or not he had actually done the colors with like Copic or Prismacolor uh, markers or if he had done it on the computer. Now, I mean, if I, I really and I really had to like I zoomed in and leaned in and tried to figure it out. And you can still tell if you're really being careful and just pouring over the comic that you can that he, you can tell he's still using the computer to do the colors. But... <laughs> Justin's just cracking up over there reading the comic, uh, but but like I said, sorry. <laughs> you can you can tell you can tell that it's still on the computer, but it's so masterfully done at times that it's it's practically impossible to tell. It, it at does first what, glance what a lot of great art does. It makes it look simple. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm hearing from you is it can't be that simple. He knows what he's doing to make it look simple. Absolutely. Although later on, I would argue that at times that texture overlay goes a little too far. Hmm. And it is a thing that artists ch- uh, struggle with because the texture overlay is sort of this sort of this siren's song. It's really tempting to use. It's editing, right? Anything that you do that is artistic, mm-hmm. whether it's you know laying down a drum track or whether it's drawing a character or whether it's creating you know some new dish. If you're a chef, the thing that makes somebody who is I think really good at that particular thing is the person who knows to edit back. I can have a a huge drum fill here in this section Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I'm skilled and I can do it and I can do it on time and you know, blah, 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 blah. But there's a right amount. But you always hear like, for example, and I'll just, I'll just, I'll just talk about sort of something that I have experience with, like putting a track down for a song. There's the way that you, you know, talk about playing something with soul, right? There's the way that it comes out of you naturally. And then you, you play it over and over and over and, you know, you're, you're playing the songs 
hundreds of times sure. before you record anything. And then you, you know, you get it down on, on, you track it and you listen to it and you think, okay, that's, I mean, I, that's clunky or it's right. So you have a choice. You can, you know, you can, you can play up or play out or you can, you can bring it back a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think if you had a criticism, that would be, that would be it. Listen, you know, you can do it, right? Yeah, you but can you, but dial it back. Yeah, there's like a sure. sweet spot. It's, it's, there's a sweet spot. Yeah, there's yeah. The, it's it's in editing, and you see like all these cooking shows and crap, and you know, but and then they're like, well, if you just edited yourself a little bit, but that's really actually a sign of experience in that in whatever field it is. Yeah, using moderation because you get a new tool, you got some way to try and express yourself or something that's fun or cool or new or interesting, and it's easy to go crazy with it. Yeah, and it is a challenge to use it with moderation. And use it just the right amount. And yeah. Find that sweet spot, and it's it's hard. Cough, it's really yeah. Hard. I think auto tune. A certain extent, <laughs> you got to output a lot, and then when you have a lot, you can know exactly what you need to cut out. Mm-hmm. But if you start like, oh, I just need to make this really short. It's really hard to make something short versus something that's actually long John cut back. I think you gave a perfect example when you did on the panel. You're like, I, you know, I write and write and write, and half of it. Is always gonna, you know, you have to be willing to be rejected. It's gonna come back ninety percent of it. It's we'll crap, see right? A day. It might right. even be good, but it, it's just you're not gonna find a home for everything you write if you're a writer who writes prolifically. Right, right. Any artistic skill that can be developed, you've you've got to develop it. That's it. That's how it works. You have to practice it, and a lot of what you do is not for anyone else's eyes, or even if they even if they would appreciate it, it's just to sharpen your craft. This is why we still have new Jimi Hendrix albums coming out and he's been dead for 40 years is because they always discover these tapes that he never meant anybody to hear right. when he was in his bedroom with his guitar, you know, and exactly. they, always, they release these things, you know, they do that with any dead rock star. Right? Of course. Yeah. I was going to say, are we still talking about adventuresome? Yeah. 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 <laughs> it is that good. I mean, it's, I gotta say, I gotta say that normally this isn't the kind of comic I read. It's not the kind of art that I seek out, but in this strip, I think that the jokes and the uh, and the the storytelling is more important than the art. And I think once I saw some of the the jokes that really got me past, oh, that's not my kind of art, you know. And I started enjoying it more. Well, and seeing, oh, I see the humor here now. Okay. Well, you know, it's something that we talk about every once in a while. And again, as an artist, it's super hard to say this, but at the end of the day, it's the story is the most important part. Absolutely. There's the, there's the cartoon and. Yeah, well, I mean, you you can great art with a shitty story is a shitty shitty comic. Exactly, a terrible mm. art with an amazing story is still a pretty damn good comic. I mean, it's it's just the reality. <laughs> it can it. be. Yeah, it can yeah. be. You yeah, know, if be. if it gets too far, and I mean, there's obviously a balance of some kind, but you can make someone laugh their ass off with stick figures. It doesn't matter as long yeah. as as long as the story is there, as long as the writing quality is there, it doesn't really matter. It I really do that every time I draw something for somebody on Draw Something. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, do we have anything else we want to talk about with uh, with Adventuresome or other than just go, go yeah, check it out? I was wondering about the title because I expected an, when I said, oh, Adventuresome, an adventure comic. It's really not an adventure comic. And so I guess oh, maybe that's meant ironically. I think perhaps you just invent adventurous with the subjects and maybe, maybe just, oh, no, of a, there's a bit of fantasy in there sure 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 the knight who was a bread yeah, yeah. dude the knight who knight was, was a bread, bread. <laughs> or the or or the the knight who was reunited for boobs yeah yeah man I, of course I, I want that i want that as a poster because it's one of the funniest things i've ever seen <laughs> not nah, when i saw it come up as adventuresome my first thought is oh God, it's an Adventure Time knockoff. <laughs> oh, and it's definitely right. not. And I was just not in a good mood to start that. <laughs> and then it came on, and there's the night who was bred, and I'm, 
Okay, this is a little better now. Oh man, that expecting. night who was bred so funny. Anyway, and then the boobs. <laughs> and then the boobs. So yeah, I guess let's go ahead and wrap up our indie spotlight. We were talking, of course, about Adventuresome. You can find Adventuresome at adventuresome.ca. It's been going since January of 2011. It's been releasing for twice a week since then. So there's a huge amount that you can enjoy on there. You can find Keith on Twitter at Keith Ito, K-E-I-T-H-I-T-O, and on Facebook.com forward slash Adventuresome Comics. We're going to go ahead and take a quick musical break. When we get back, we're going to start talking to John about his new book, Revelations of Zang. You're listening to Geek Life. Stick with us. Before we get into our interview with John, of course, we wanted to suggest a really good book on Audible. This podcast is sponsored by Audible. You can go to audibletrial.com forward slash geeklife to pick up your free audiobook and enjoy one month free of their excellent, excellent service. When you are a member, you get 30% off of everything in their catalog as well as a credit for a free book every month. Some books take two credits, but I haven't come across any yet. There's just so yeah. many that just one credit. Yeah, me neither. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anything, anything that I've come across, like, oh, that sounds amazing. I'm expecting something to be two credits at some yeah. point and have run a 20, 30 hour books. Still I think one the only credit. thing, I think it's like, I think it's like Shogun and stuff like that that's <laughs> going to be the two credit ones. Okay. Anyway. Oh, I got to see if they have Shogun. Uh, I think they might, because I think that that was what the admin said, gave as an example of something that was too good. Anyway, appropriately, at the time of this recording, just a couple days ago, I guess yesterday, well, today, (laughs) (laughs) the uh, movie World War Z came out, and we recorded a review of it, which you can go to reviews.pandamanga.com and check that out. But while we were hanging out and talking about it before and after the review with John Harder of Waterfront Comics, he shared with us some interesting information about the audiobook of World War Z, which is amazing. Because most of the time, audiobooks, it's just one voice. One man, one woman, whatever, doing it. And they, they change their voice a little bit for different characters, and some of them do it really well, some of them not so well. But very rarely do you get the, the luxury of having a cast for an audiobook. Mm-hmm. But World War Z has a cast, and it's a star-studded cast. Yeah, because Simon Pegg, Alan Alda, Rob Reiner. I mean, just to name a wow. few, it's a bunch yeah. of people. And so the thing is, is that Max Brooks is son of Mel Brooks. And so he's got 
connections. And when they were going to do the audiobook, he basically tapped into his dad's network of, of connections and has just amazing people on this thing. And so it's just one of the best audiobooks I've heard as far as production value and, and, and just amazing cast of voices and really, really well done. So that would be our recommendation, sort of timely and also just a great damn audiobook. So good place to start. If you've never done Audible before, it's really, really cool. And why not get a free book? So go to audibletrial.com forward slash geek life to pick up a free audiobook. And our recommendation this time around is the World War Z audiobook. Really, really good. So, John, let's start talking about your book. Now, normally when we are talking about some book or comic or something like that, we, we just pull up Amazon and, and read the description. But being that you're here, yeah. <laughs> I'll just put you on the spot. Yeah, tell get us, it from tell the us about mouth. your book. Oh, okay. Um, the Revelations of Zhang is a 12-story collection, and these stories were written uh, in about a six-year period. It starts off with the first professional sale that I ever made, which was to Weird Tales magazine. And the, it ran in 2005, I believe, in Weird Tales, called The Persecution of Artifice the Quill. And this story represented a breakthrough for me in the fact that I had been trying for 15 years to get into Weird Tales, my favorite all-time fiction magazine. And um, ever since I was in college, I was trying to write a, a story that would be worthy of Weird Tales. Now, is and, Weird uh, Tales, is this the same one that, that has the long, rich history of having people like H.P. Lovecraft in it at one point? Absolutely. Lovecraft, okay. Robert E. Howard, Fritz, Fritz Leiber, Clark Ashton Smith, one of my favorites. Anyway, great legacy stretching all the way back to the 20s. So a big dream fulfilled. It was. When I, got, when I got this story published, um, when I first sold it to Weird Tales, I felt like, all right, I finally figured out how to write short stories. So I was so inspired by that. I just went ahead and I wrote another story in this universe and another and another and another. And Weird Tales accepted two more of these stories. But long story short, those two tales didn't end up appearing in Weird Tales due to a change in editorial management. And <laughs> one of them attacks. <laughs> one of them appeared in another magazine, Black Gate. So this series, I call it the cycle. A lot of the great fantasy Stories have been told in cycles, like Conan. Robert E. Howard wrote about 12 or so Conan stories. Elric. A lot of the great classic uh, fantasy properties have started off as series of short stories. And that's what I wanted to do. I'm, I wanted, I didn't think I was ready for to write a novel yet. So I wrote story after story set in the, the world of Zhang. But I knew that I wanted the stories to link together and tell an overall story. And I thought one day... I'll have these stories and I'll put them all together under one book. And I don't know what I'll call it, but it'll be really cool. So several years later, now we have the Revelations of Zhang, which is 12 stories. The 12th one is actually a novella, 16,000 words. So five of these stories have been published in one in Weird Tales, four in Black Gate, and seven of them have never been published before. So it's it's not really a novel, but when you read the stories back to back in the appropriate order, you get the same effect as if you were reading a novel. So then they are sequential? They are sequential. They appeared out of order, interestingly enough, because editors... Like as you were releasing them and getting published, they uh, appeared yeah, out of order. It wasn't up to me which ones got published. It was up to the so editors of whatever So that must be challenging because then you have to have them be able to be a complete thought individually while still having that undercurrent of them fitting together like puzzle pieces when you're Absolutely. planning on having a, a compilation. Well, you Absolutely. You just read it how I read it, which was like a choose your own adventure story. And I just skipped about 50 pages here, then 30 pages back. Brilliant story, man. Thanks. Well, the fun thing about that is 
I call it modular storytelling. Each story has to have its own beginning, middle, and end. Right. Mm-hmm. And yet it has to relate to the overall t- storytelling. You know, and I think that's where my, my comics fan background came in because reading comics, Where'd you the, get the best story comics are and, like that. Yeah. The mm-hmm. best comics give you an ending, but also make you want to read the next issue. Sure. You know? It's a hook. Yeah. It's a hook. So there's a, there's like a mega story being told. And then there's the, the through story, the through line. I guess mm-hmm. you could call it the micro story and the macro story. Sure. Well, the Getting too theoretical and, already. The narrative and the story. But that's yeah. really cool, though, because some, there's one, of, one of the authors that I read is Jim Butcher. I really like his Dresden Files series. It's very fun. Uh, he's, he does his research when it comes to the, the lore and the, the old religion and everything. It's very cool. But he does a lot of little side stories and short stories, but they fit in between the books. And so sometimes something will be referenced in a book that you'd only know if you would happen to read the short story in the sequence. And it's a little jarring, but that's really my only real experience with with an author that does lots of short stories in addition to novels. So it's kind of cool to hear you say that you're doing it in such a way that they can work together like that as, you know, like there's there's a macro story going on behind the scenes, but they all fit together like that, but they're also separate at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, because like I said, with the butcher stuff, it's just kind of peppered all over the place. There's no real rhyme or reason as to when or whatever. It's just like, oh, I'd like to elaborate here and I have an opportunity to get in this compilation or that compilation. And it's like, well, I'll elaborate about this stuff and the books that I'm in between right now, well, well it'll happen now. And yeah. so it's a very different way from what I'm used to. And so it's really cool to hear you put it's that a, It's almost a way of practicing writing a novel before you ever write a novel. Mm. Because... You could compare the chapters of a novel to short stories, except they're much more interrelated and they, and they usually can't stand on their own. Every now and then you can pick a chapter out of a novel and say, this could be its own short story. But in general, they're usually too tied together. And so I think this may have been me as a writer working out, how do I tell a massive novel length story? And for me, it was only natural to tell it in the form of a cycle of short stories. And then in um, roughly 2009, 2010, I made a, a, a decision to switch to novels and I think if now, I had the hadn't novels done, take a place in a different universe, or the yeah, same? A totally different okay. universe. Um, the books of the Shaper consists of seven princes and seven kings, both of which are out now. And seven sorcerers comes out in December, and that's the big climax to the trilogy. We'll have to have you back when that comes out. Oh, please, uh, that would be great. I would love to come and talk about that. Um, so your your jump from short story to novel. Do you think that having sort of been there, done that with the short stories, helped you maybe? Build, was it? Do you think it was a confidence thing, or I think that writing a huge story in the form, writing a big macro story in the form of these twelve stories over a period of years, gave me a much better ability to dive in and do a novel. Okay. Now, did it work the first time? No, because when I wrote the first novel, I scrapped it and started over. <laughs> but then the second time, I got everything just right. And well, that did you was say the that novel first that, novel was the backbone and like the story. Yeah, the first novel that I wrote when I decided, okay, I'm. Screw short stories. I'm done with them. I'm going to write novels. I wrote this novel called Child of Thunder. And later when I got into a writing group and I started realizing why I wasn't getting any agents accepting this book, I realized what it was lacking. I went back and I moved the story 20 years into the future and I started the books of the Shaper, which again is not related to the revelations of Zhang, but just to show you that writing this one series of stories was kind of in its own way like taking six years to write a novel. Mm. You know, but the thing about these stories is they showed up in different various order, and I had zero control over what order the publishers would print these stories in. So they showed up here and there and everywhere. 
And now I've been able to go back and say, this is the order these need to be read. And you'll get a lot more out of each story when you see how ooh, these all these interlocking pieces are fitting together now. And of course, the climax, when I wrote the climax to this, it turned out to be way too long for any magazine to publish. 16,000 <laughs> words, novella length. And um, my typical so, email, apparently. <laughs> so I'm really According. glad to finally get that out there, you know, and and the fact that um, the fact that I had done two novels in print um, makes me seem a little bit more. I guess the publisher that came to me and wanted to do this ebook, they would never have come to me and said, hey, we want to do an ebook with you if I hadn't been, you know, doing these novels. So you had a little more, a little more writer cred. At that I point. guess so. Yeah. I, I have very little writer cred, but um, what I, whatever I do have enabled me to, to go back to these stories and put them together. And f- so fulfill a dream that was born 10 years ago of collecting all these stories together. So then these short stories that are collected in this book started before you even were doing the novels that you've been working on yeah, recently. World building. It was an exercise in world building too, mm-hmm. because with mm-hmm. artifice, the quill, the first story, which you can read for free online, by the way, at O1Publishing.com. Oh, cool. Um, and you can also read part of it at the Amazon. Uh, oh, by the way, I think it's also available in Nook now at BNN.com. Anyway, um, the first story really set up the world. Dude, what? And, and I got to expand that world, you know, in these stories. I, I It's killing me. What is it like to open up Amazon or Barnes & Noble and see your book? Great question. I mean, dude, that's just... I mean, it's, you you skim gotta feel real you good. skim over it like it's not a big deal. It took you 15 years to get published in the magazine that was your dream magazine to publish in. You, you got to tell me. I got to live vicariously through you for a minute. Like, <laughs> what was it like to open up that letter and be like, eh, "Oh my fucking god!" Like, well, what it was began, it like? Man? It began on the day I got a call from my agent, who wasn't my agent yet, and he said, "Your manuscript is great. I want to represent you." So I was screaming for. I was screaming. You know, shattering the roof of my apartment uh, that day because uh, you can't get anywhere without an agent. So oh, okay. it took my agent about him? eleven months to sell to find me a home. How, how did you meet him, or how did you interact? Oh, with him? a friend of mine who was a an editor at a magazine that had published some of my stories, Black Gate. Um, shout out to Howard Jones. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Not the uh, pop singer, but Howard Andrew Jones, I should say. <laughs> Howard has an amazing couple of books out. Um, the Desert of Souls and Bones of the Old One. I got to put a plug in for Howard Andrew Jones. Amazing writer. And he was a managing editor of Black Gate, who published several of my Zang stories. So when he found out I was looking for an agent, and it, I looked for three years for an agent. So I was sending it out. Every agent who handled sci-fi and fantasy got a query from me. You know, So when I got uh, Howard's advice... On this, Howard said, let me introduce you to my agent. He's a really good guy. Uh, I think he would like your stuff. So that's what happened. Basically, someone recommended me. And I found out later that's how most people get agents, really, is by somebody recommending you. Yeah. Because it's like trying to get know. into comics or Hollywood. You get it put in the slush pile. You it's know? who it's you know, man. So God, every, it's who you know. Every single yeah. industry, it's all who yeah. you know. It's just networking, pure networking. So when my first novel came out, that was way bigger of a thrill than my first short story getting published. You know, sure, that was sure. like times a hundred, you know, and it feels really awesome at first. But, you know, there's something in me where whenever I'm feeling really great about something, I'm always waiting for the other shooter drop. I'm always sure. waiting for the dark side. Yeah. And the dark side is your shit is out there now. Anybody in the world can now take a shit on what you poured your love <laughs> and into. And they will. Welcome to the interwebs. You know, you know with the, especially in the days, age of the internet. So, so part much of, flaming. But they'll yeah. love it. I mean, there's going to, but the flip of the flip side of that and what you live for and what you write for besides yourself is the people that will read it and go, wow, this is, 
this is really good. I, honestly, this this resonates with and me. And yours is very well received on Amazon. I was reading through a lot of the different reviews, and there's a full range like there is with anything. But there was a lot of people that had a lot of good things to say. I think you're getting like an overall like like four something stars. I mean, and that's, I'm really grateful for that's that. That's awesome. It's, what it, what it came out to me um, the first when the first book came out, Seven Princes, it felt like I got a lot of love from Amazon, but Goodreads hated me. People on Goodreads, there was a there was a dog pile on Goodreads. It's kind of now like, is that kind of the culture over at Goodreads? I don't want to say anything negative about Goodreads because a lot of people like it, but to me, it felt like let's go stab this guy in the heart. <laughs> wow. It's already begun. He's bleeding. Let's kick him while he's down. <laughs> it's probably it a bunch of like, bitter writers that never I, made it. Right? <laughs> well, that could be it. I mean, people just love to talk about what they fucking hate. I'm yeah. sorry. Can I be, can I say fucking Absolutely. on this podcast? Absolutely. I would, keep, today, I would probably keep the fuckings to a fucking minimum, though, if you can don't all fucking right. If you don't so, fucking mind. Damn it, you guys I personally make me work so hard putting those bleeps beep, in. Beep, beep, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but I love to talk about things I love, things sure. that are good. If I don't like something, I just ignore it, man. Because I don't want to bash on somebody. Even when you read a shitty book or a shitty comic, or you see an awful movie. Somebody put their life into that thing, man. Yeah. Somebody poured their life into Porky's Three. Okay. <laughs> somebody poured their life into the worst book you ever read. Okay. Yeah, and I'm the kind of person who throws books across the room when they piss me off so much. So, and I've been known to rip comics in half. You know. So, Damn. but I don't no. go online Blasphemer. and say this guy should die and his children should starve because he wrote a bad issue of. You know, Robin or something. Well, but yeah. there are people who love, they get off on tearing down people who are trying to do something creative. And you just have to learn to deal with that. And that was one of the challenges. Like, I'm kind of glad it was there because it helped me maintain my equilibrium when my book came out, you know, because when your book comes out, you see the good reviews, but you see the bad reviews. And you see the people who aren't even reviewers who are just tearing it apart on completely superficial, subjective basis. And then you realize, you have to say to yourself, wake up, buck up. You're an adult. You're a writer. This is why you get paid. You're putting your shit out there for people. Some of them are going to hate it and some of them are going to love it. That's the cost of being a writer or really any creative field. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know? you're going to put yourself out there. There are going to be people that like it. There's a range. I, I always thought of it this way. You basically got three categories. You're going to get people that feel strongly disliking it. You're going to have people that don't give a shit. And you're going to have people that really like it. There's like kind of that whole, I mean, then it's sort of all the different ranges in, in there. But How? you can pretty well fit people into one of those three categories. And the reality is, is that if you want to continue to be motivated, you got to focus on the people that like it. Because all that other stuff is not going to do anything but tear you down. And it's, it's, I mean, it, maybe if someone is really skillful about their constructive criticism, then that can be helpful. <laughs> By far and away, that's rare, especially with the Internet, because people just get off, like you said, on just flaming people. Everyone's a quit critic with the Internet. Everyone has an audience. You know, yeah. it's like they used to say, everyone's a critic, but now everyone has an audience. Well, yeah. so, and, and, and there's know. a right way to tear something down in a wrong way, right? Yes, bless yeah. us with your knowledge of the shit sandwich, my friend. <laughs> well, there's the shit sandwich, right? You gotta sandwich things, but um, you know, the other thing, too, is you can actually give constructive criticism. Sure. I mean, yeah, if absolutely. you're actually talented absolutely. enough to, you know, participate in that realm, there, there's, yeah, but there's good feedback. so much give. on the internet of, I don't like this book because oh, a guy spells his name that. funny. Oh, absolutely. Uh, okay, so let me give it a Jack Alright, so look. Well, okay, how long, so your first novel, how many pages is it? Over three hundred, I guess. Okay, so if I if I take the time to read a book that's three hundred pages, let's say, right, and at the end of that book, I'm like, this fucking book sucked. Well, that's the problem. Half of them don't read all of it. That's the. Yeah. Th I mean, you right? can tell from I mean, the from the from a lot of the bad quote quote reviews that these people 
didn't finish reading it. As an artist myself, you know, you put stuff out there. People are going to love it. People are going to hate it. People are going to be ambivalent about it. The most important thing out of all of that is that you almost always still, well, you love it. You know, every song I ever, that we ever wrote as a band, I love that song. Some of them I like playing more than others, but you know, there's something in every song that I'm like, God, I love this part, you know, or, right, or, right. and there's, there's been songs where we've played them and I'm like, eh, not my favorite song anymore, but you know, six months down the road, you're like, God, I love this song again. Sure. Absolutely. But for you, I mean, you created this thing, you had the balls to do it, right? I mean, any creative person, you know, you have the, you have the guts to go out there and do it. So, you know, a critic, fine. If they're paid to be a critic, great. If it's average Joe out on the interwebs and they just didn't happen to like your book, fine. People can be critical, whatever. There's anonymity. You know, maybe they have an audience, maybe they don't. The most important thing about it, I think, though, is that you took the time and effort and honed a skill and honed a craft and created something, put it out there. It's tangible. And so I fucking lost my thought. God damn it. That's okay. Man. I hear, I hear what you're so. saying. You know, and, and I don't want to sound too negative about this because the answer, the, the first answer to your question is it felt awesome. Yeah. Wow, Good. my book is on Amazon. My book is in the first time I saw my book in Barnes and Noble. That was a big kick too. Oh and then, man, I'll bet. And then yeah. you go back in, and and, you, and it's not there. And then you're like, oh my god, why isn't it there? You know, it's like <laughs> this is the artistic. <laughs> did they mentality. pull it or did this it is sell nothing? Out? What I'm describing here is nothing more than the artistic temperament. Sure, artists right. are constantly gravitating between I am awesome and I totally suck. And there are people who will it's tell you variously. Yeah. They will validate. Both Ocean? of those for you right. simultaneously, sure, sure. you know, I, sometimes in the same sentence. What I was getting at was, and I'm sorry that there was such a big letdown for, but what, because I, yeah, we were all sitting what, here like watching. I know I was like so animated and but what, I guess what I was getting at is that the person who criticizes, I think perhaps there's a bit of. Well, you know, I could have done that better. They're hecklers, right? They're hecklers at a comedy show. Sure. You know, oh, you're not funny. I could do it better. Well, you know, one of the funniest things I ever saw was, I think it was Jamie Kennedy, who I don't think is particularly funny when you see him in movies, but he actually goes, well, yeah, come, I tell you what, man, come on up here. He was, you know, it's on YouTube. This guy heckles him. He's like, come on up here. And the guy comes up on stage and just stands there and just is not funny at all. Can't and it's it. sort of like. Yeah. Sit your fucking ass down and shut up and let the adults talk, right? <laughs> so I guess the point I was getting at is you put this thing out. You you know, you manned up and did it. And you're gonna have people that go read partial, whatever, read the first few pages, read whatever it is that, that is available for free online, and they criticize it. And that person may be somebody who would never take one iota of even the smallest attempt at getting something out there in the public. So, yeah, you know. there are those people who they would rather tear down what other people do because they don't have any belief that they could do it themselves, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. But I like to look at thoughtful reviews and see what I can get from that, you know, and see if it's a really a review that examines a work of art, whether it's mine or someone else's. I'll take what I can take from that. But there's you know? worth yeah. there. There can good, be worth Yeah, good yeah. or bad. Well, yeah. If it's an actual mm -hmm. thoughtful review, that's great. You know, just like bad hecklers, there are people that. Oh, I love it so much. Well, why? Well, that has been a very because it's a book. It's been a yeah. very interesting journey for us at on the Geek Life podcast because we decided to focus on independent comics, which at first sounded like a great idea, and then you realize there's some terrible independent comics, yeah. and we came to an impasse where we decided, or a crossroads, I guess, where we had to go. 
well, are we only going to talk about independent comics that we really like? Or are we going to be willing to do some promotion for and talk about comics that maybe aren't fully arrived yet? I have an awesome segue. Well, we're talking How do you about- keep balanced on those? Because those things seem like they'd be hard to ride. <laughs> Not that kind of segue. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, there's the thing. Artistic endeavor, art itself, is subjective in nature. One man's trash is another man's treasure. Whatever you love, someone out there is going to hate that thing. And whatever you sure. hate, there's someone out there who loves it. And that's that. the nature of art itself and the paradox behind that is one of the things that I explore in The Revelations of Zhang. How's that for a segue? There you go. Nice. That's good. Boom, headshot. Because I totally caught that in, oh, you in um, the persecution of uh, Artifice Quill. I'm so glad very, someone caught that. <laughs> yeah. No, it it's actually very apparent. He did a good job of illustrating his total detest of magic just because he didn't understand it. Yeah, this is just a little setup for people that don't know the story. Artifice the Quill is the most famous writer in a what you might consider a typical fantasy world city, a city that is ruled by uh, sorcerer kings. And you have summoned demons in bottles being sold in the marketplace. You have um, silver mask enforcers patrolling the streets, um, controlling the populations with magical powers. You have basically an, the iron rule of this great metropolis by these nine sorcerer kings who a hundred years ago dispelled all religion from the city, cast down the temples and said, we are your new gods basically. Uh, so we, we rule you and their entire power structure is based on their sorcery. Well, artifice, the quill writes a book called the end of sorcery and it becomes the most popular book in the city. And you know, you've got back then they didn't have printing presses. So you've got an, an entire tower of quills copying this book day and night, getting 10,000 copies of it out to the literati of the city. Mm-hmm. Well, immediately the sorcerer kings crack down on this. They begin ba- banning and burning the books. They pass a death sentence on Artifice the Quill. And this is the first story which sees Artifice the Quill trying to get the hell out of the city yeah. before he's mm-hmm. annihilated. That's where in the they very come first and grab scene, him. They come for him in the very first scene yeah. of the very first story. Awesome. Uh, well, why don't we take a musical break? And when we get back, if you would indulge us, I think that a couple of us would like to pick your brain a little bit about how... Or maybe get some advice about getting yourself published, breaking into that uh, that whole world, and also just writing and, and just and you know working as a creative professional. Well, sure. Yeah. All right. Thank you for sticking around, and uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Geek Life. Stick with us. candid chat with John, our Fultz, and hopefully he can give us a, a little advice, those of us out there in the podcast universe and in this room as well, that are interested in writing and publishing and breaking into a creative field that is competitive and challenging. So, f- first of all, can you just, you know, maybe just throw out some some advice. Yeah, like, what would you say if someone walked up to you and said, hey, so I, I want to be a writer, can you, can you give me some advice? 
I would first ask them what they're reading and tell them they got to read. Read like your life depends on it because nobody becomes a good writer unless they're a a heavy reader. Uh, that's just basic. And read what you love. Read the read the writers that you love and reread them. Break down their paragraphs and figure out why you love them so much. Like my favorite writers, their stuff to me is so beautiful. I have trouble reading it because I want to stop and enjoy the language and I have to force myself to keep reading. So read your favorite writers as often as you can. Um, And the other flip side of that is write, write, write. You've got to write and realize that most of what you write is never going to see the light of day. You're writing it for yourself first and foremost. You got to keep so reading. It's like, it's like an writing. artist filling their sketchbook. You're the honing time. your craft. Absolutely. Yeah. You got to write, write, write. And someone said you got to write about a million words of crap before you get to the good stuff. Yeah. People say that you've got a couple thousand bad drawings in you. You just got to get them out. It's, just, mm-hmm. it's a similar. For, so, yeah. 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 There's really some truth to that. You there know? really is. Yeah, absolutely. Jack Kerouac wrote 10 novels before he got one published. So, and now he's a legend. So, Oh, absolutely. So that's that's some really good advice. Now, what is it like industry side? There has got to be some minds that you might have stepped on on your way in there that you can maybe help some other people circumnavigate. Well, I'm very lucky in the fact that I have an amazing agent. Bob Mikoy is his name. And he is my industry contact. He is my guy in New York. I don't have to do the stuff I hate, like selling myself convincing people to publish me. That's the thing I hated about writing short stories is that I would pour all my effort into getting this short story perfect. Then I'd try to sell it. I'd send it to all the editors who might buy it. And then I'd send it, you know, I'd keep sending it, keep sending it. Two years later, you might find that no one wants to buy that story or they buy it and it sits in a drawer for two years until they publish it. And then you get a hundred bucks for it. Short stories in the twenties and thirties, you can make a living writing. Today, you can't. There's just not a market for it. So even when you did get accepted with a short story, it was a short lived victory and you didn't get a lot of you didn't get a lot out of it. And so I kind of forgot where I was heading with that. Well, let me ask you. So how does that work? Let's say somebody buys your story. You don't get paid till it gets published, but I assume yeah. that they buy the rights to, well, to publish. Well, it's changing. Publishing is always changing, especially in the digital age now. Now there are a lot of publishers who will pay you on acceptance, but traditionally it was paying upon publication. Because that would be a bummer. Like that's almost like somebody would buy it, right? Send you a contract, but then you payment on publication. You may have to wait. I've literally waited four years to get paid two hundred. And you could never, you could never. Send it to another publisher. No, because you just signed a contract contracting yeah. that away. That them. seems... Yeah, that's a bummer. And that's the way it works with short stories. Today, though, there are more and more outlets, and most of them are online, that pay upon acceptance. So you're lucky if you get a pay upon acceptance place. But even then, you really can't make a living selling short stories. So, But if you want to be a, a writer and make a living from it, you either got to write scripts and sell it to movie producers, or you've got to write novels. All right, so back to John's question for for just a second. So just starting out, you're writing and writing and writing and writing, and you're getting confident in your writing and your ability, and now you can put together pretty decent stories, and now you yourself, pre-agent, because it seems like that's the moat, that's the gap right there is, there's before I have an agent, agent, right? There's before I have an agent, yeah, which is I have to do all my own marketing, I have to do all my own promoting, I have to do my own, you know, I'm not like... Which is a completely separate skill set. Right, like you shave away sort of... And there are people the artist, doing that today. Right? Sure. There, are, there are people today, as I said, it's always changing. There are people actually self-publishing today on Kindle, for example. Well, and, yeah, and right, hitting right, it big. You right, know? Right. They're getting print contracts because they sold. You couldn't do that five years ago because so the, the opportunity culture has there. changed. Well, today there's an opportunity for self-publishing that was not there just a few years ago. But it sounds like 
not to interrupt, but I just want to complete the thought. It, it really, what it sounds like you're saying is really just be persistent. You know, the story's good. Send it to as many people as you can and resend and keep writing and keep sending. Yeah, eventually, eventually it comes to you. Really? The it's mountain sa- comes it depends to, on what you, know. you want to do. There's, there's as many different ways to be successful as there are to fail really. And you got to know what am I writing? What is my market? Am I writing sci-fi? Where are these markets? Am I writing fantasy? What markets? Am mm-hmm. I writing crime fiction? What markets? What do you there? mean when you say market? What magazines are going to buy these stories? Huh. If I did a good story, what magazine is going to buy it? Now, there are there publishers that like to focus on one particular thing? And well, I'm a genre guy, so I'm I've always written fantasy foremost, horror second, and sci-fi third, and mm-hmm. I've written all three of those things. So my my focus was always on the fantasy magazines. And my stuff falls halfway between fantasy and horror. It's more on the dark fantasy side. So Weird Tales for me was the holy grail of getting published. This was back before they had the big shakeup a few years ago, and they changed management. And now they've changed management again, and they're trying to be a little more back to the traditional Weird Tales. But for me, the goal was just get published in Weird Tales. If I can get published there, I can get published anywhere. Because Daryl Schweitzer, sort of a mentor of mine, he he was editing Weird Tales at the time. And he rejected me for 15 years. But always told me, here's what you got to work on. Here's how to hone your craft. You know, mm-hmm. He would write me the most awesome rejection letters. Not, not a, lot of, not <laughs> a awesome. lot of editors do that. A lot of people, when they get a rejection letter, will just say, screw you, man, and and not listen to it. I took it to heart and I tried to incorporate those things and I kept writing and I kept studying. And actually what what happened was I gave up writing prose for a while and went to writing comics, did my own comic, Necromancy. For two years, I wrote and drew a comic, self-published it. And when I came back to prose, I felt like I had crossed a barrier in my mind. I felt like because when you do comics, your prose, your your text, it has to be lean and mean. There's no room for extra fillers. Every bit of text has to fit the panel and work with the panel and the page can only support so much text. So one of the big things about being a young writer is you usually just cram a bunch of stuff in there. And the most important thing to do is to go back and cut, cut, cut writing a comic. I did a 96 page graphic novel and I learned that you've got to cut out every word you don't need. And I also talked to people like Brian Azzarello at at conventions. And he said the same thing. Everybody who asked him at, at cons and panels, he would say, they would say, how do you write? And he's like, basically, I write it, and then I go back and I cut it mercilessly. Cut, 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 cut. The other thing Azarello said that I never forgot was, always start with an end in mind. Always know your ending before you start writing. And that's something that I that I do as well. But I think, basically, if you want to, you got to know your market, know where you can sell, and then you got to get in there and keep selling. And don't let a story sit in the drawer. Put that story out there to every editor who might buy it. There are people, though, who skip the short story process and go directly to novels. And I've known them before. Most people start off writing short stories and then they build up to novels. But there are people who just go straight away. They had a novel in their head for 10 years and they finally write it and then they workshop it and they get it perfect. And wow, they get an agent. That's not my path. My path was the slow <laughs> climb, you know. Workshop? And, Describe workshopping. You know, getting together with a group of writers, sharing, you know, maybe it's only a chapter at a time, getting feedback. And I did that with my first novel. And that's how I found out I got some real world feedback and I found out how valuable these writers groups are. So that would be my third piece of advice to writers. First, you got to read. Second, you got to write. And third, join a writers group because nobody can give you good advice on your writing like other writers. Mm-hmm. And it gives you a a reason to write the next chapter or the next story. Wow, I got a writing group coming up next week. It's like a level I gotta of, bring com- something of in. accountability that you have. Involved, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you get to see your work through others' eyes, Knives. which is so valuable. 
That's the first time I ever saw my work through others' eyes is when I was in this writing group. So the first four chapters of Seven Princes, which was the novel that I, that was the first novel I sold. Right. The first four chapters were heavily workshopped by my, this writing group that I was in, in um, the San Jose area. And I really, I thank those guys in the, in the acknowledgements because they helped me make those four chapters good enough, so good that my friend's agent read it. He said, I got to represent this guy. So I don't think those chapters would have been that good without that great feedback from my, from my fellow writers. Well, I think that's great advice. You know, as a musician, you always want to play with people that are better than you. Because, <laughs> yeah. And it goes back to like knives, sharpen knives, right? Sure. So you always yeah. want to be, you don't want to be the worst guy in the room, but you don't want to be, I don't know if being the best guy in the room. It's boring like, to be the best guy in the room. You know? Well, you, you can learn from other people, but a lot of times, yeah. But I think also just having somebody push you Mm-hmm. Is, is really great. So yeah, that's something I never even thought of, especially mm-hmm. writing because you spend so much of your time alone when you're a writer sitting, just you and your, you and your computer screen, you and your keyboard, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, the blank white screen of death. <laughs> yeah. So it's hard. It used to be the blank page. Now it's the blank screen. Yeah. And so it's hard to get that subjective feeling. I mean, and writers are hard on their own stuff. I mean, I can't open any of my books without seeing, I just see the flaws and other people sure. will be like, this is a great passage. And I'm like, yeah, but what about this? You know, it's like writers are their own worst critics. Could have, would have, should have, right? And, and as an amateur too, it's hard to take what advice to listen to because everyone's saying different things and you have your mm-hmm. own thing. Sometimes you feel like this is right. And next week you're like, well, this is, this is wrong and this is right. And it, it's really hard until you get some experience to really figure out how to put it together and what order the rules go in. Sure. Definitely. Yeah. Now, Justin, we were talking off air about you being interested in doing a children's book. So, yeah, right? oddly enough. Yeah. So, so do you have any? So, there's you the, to ask so that is the paradox that that is me. I love death metal and babies <laughs> <laughs> and bunnies and kittens and all that crap. But that's, um, that's pretty well. I don't know. I don't know where the where the idea came from. I'm a big guy. Um, I've always been a big guy. And um, somewhere along the road, I had this little epiphany that. I have this great story that I think would be really relatable in a really interesting way. And, um, but I can't, I can't draw to save, you know, I can draw stick figures. And like I said, you know, you, you want to see something funny, you just send me a request for draw something. So my question is, I guess, again, you know, I guess it sounds like first thing I need to do, I just need to write it. So just get it written. Just write it. You know, come up with your ideas for the pictures. Are you thinking of a children's book where there's like one illustration per page? Yeah. Yeah. Not in a, not, this wouldn't really be a comic book. That's what I was going to say. Much easier than a comic because one illustration, a page and most children's books are what? Less than 50 pages. Yeah. Yeah. That's way less. You could hire an artist to do that. Well, yeah, I understand easily or just, you know, keep networking and find a buddy who wants to work with you. So I guess if to hire an artist to do a comic, I've been there. It's a nightmare. (laughs) <laughs> because you're talking about four to seven panels a page for 22 pages at least. And you're talking about thousands of dollars just to get a pro quality artist to do a comic for you. This is why out of sheer frustration, I quit trying and I started drawing my own comics back in 1999. Mm-hmm. Two years later, I came, I, I poked my head up and went, you know what? I'm a much better writer than I am artist. You know, and, and this is what people were telling me when I gave out copies of my comic. They were like, I really like your story and your inking. But nobody said, I really like your penciling. So (laughs) I learned that, hey, I could either spend 10 more years perfecting my comic art skills or I could focus on my writing. 
And that's what happened. And so I always saw my career as two pronged. I'm going to keep working on comics and comic pitches, and I'm going to keep working on short stories and eventually novels. And whichever one pays off more is the one that will get more of my time. And of course, novels paid off more. And so novels have gotten most of my time. But I did manage to crank out my graphic novel Primordia, which was illustrated by Roel Walinga for Archaea Comics. And I got two stories for Boom that I did, a Zombie Tales and a Cthulhu Tales. But it's so weird. Getting into comics is its own adventure, its own surreal trip. Because the old saying is anybody can get into comics, but staying in in comics, you know, is the hard part. As soon as I sold Mark Wade two scripts for Boom, Mark Wade ended up a few months later leaving Boom, and both those titles were canceled oh, that I had written for. And so it's like, whoa. And then my graphic novel Primordia, the three it came out as a three issue series in two thousand seven late 2007, early 2008, and was supposed to come out in collected edition five months later. Well, it came out three years later from, from the same company because that company had gone through a restructuring and a change of ownership. And so after three years, nobody remembers, oh, yeah, that's that Primordia that came out. you know. And any heat you had from the three-issue series is gone. Mm. So it's a gorgeous hardcover. And it's it's we at Comixology too, Primordia Comixology. If you want to read it there, but the the hardcover has all kinds of cool extra stuff in it. So I felt kind of burned by that experience, and I focused more on doing a novel because I had a lot of fun doing comics. But it seemed like if you're not an artist, comics is not your medium. I hate to say this to all the wannabe writers out there because my fondest dream in life for many years was to be a comics writer. But writing is writing. Good writing transcends medium. But if you are not an artist. Comics is not your medium. Comics is first and foremost an artist's medium. You got to have a good artist. And if you're an artist, you'll get way more attention from editors and publishers than if you're a writer. Unless you're an already established writer like Neil Gaiman or Stephen King. Actually, Neil Gaiman's a bad example because he started in comics and broke out. But Neil Gaiman was the first person who ever did that, by the way. Nobody, nobody ever started in comics and broke out of comics until Neil Gaiman. But the better example would be Stephen King. Stephen King, you know, great successful writer and now has tons of comics out as well. Sure. You could probably name a lot of other writers that have come into uh, China Mayville doing DC comics now, but it's but, an, it's but an art do medium. The, they it's don't an do art the art. You know, he does. I'm sure Stephen King's not right. He doesn't need to because he's got cachet. He's going to bring readers to the table. But when you're trying to break in comics and you're a writer, you either need to have an, a great art partner or hire a great art partner mm-hmm. or do your own great art. There's really no other way. And I just decided for me, I love comics, always will love comics, but I want to spend the majority of my creative time doing something where I don't need a partner. I don't need to go out and find an artist and then hope that they're going to deliver because when I'm writing novels, it's just me. And that's what I love about it is that that novel lives or dies on what I've done. And to a lesser extent, my editor, what my editor can do for me. And a great editor can be incredibly valuable. Sure, Editors, I think they exist to make you better at what you do. And the, that's what the, the good ones really do. So you were saying earlier, um, what were some of the potholes that I, that I stepped in right, yeah. trying to get in? I think the main thing was finding an agent. That's the really hard thing to do mm. if you want to be a writer. And, but if but you, you have, think that there's a lot of writers out there that try without an agent thinking that they can just do that and don't you can, uh, like underappreciate the worth of an agent. Well, nowadays people are saying, Oh, don't go look for an agent, go self publish. And that works for some people. But it sounds like that's not what you would recommend if you were mentoring someone. I would say do it all. 
self-publish okay. mm-hmm. and look for an agent. Because if you have any success at all in your self-publishing, they're going to come to you. Oh, yeah. Okay. No investor is going to want to take a risk on no one. If you can self-publish and get some of that risk out of the way and see this is how the market reacts to me, that definitely will intrigue people. Yeah. Here. You know, it's, it's something that you hear in art a lot of the times is that it's no longer my portfolio is my portfolio. It's my projects are my portfolio. You know, Absolutely. It's, it's like if you've, you, you're not going to go up with, with a portfolio, you know, book and say, here, look at my stuff. What do you think? You're going to find a lot more success with having that as well as, oh, and by the way, I, I did this, 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 and this full published actual projects or independent projects or something like that. It shows so much more than I can draw these pictures and in these styles and I have these skill sets because you got to, you got to show if, if you've been able to put something together and work with other people and bring something to completion, there's something about having been through that whole process and not having it fall apart in the middle of it that demonstrates a huge amount of worth beyond your technical skill. Well, it shows that you can deliver. Yeah, absolutely. You're not just fly by the, or, you know, fly by night. And you can get so much good experience with, actually, there's, there's an entire lecture that I've worked up on this and I actually gave it at the Art Institute a couple months ago and they want me to give it again uh, over the summer about the incredible importance of personal projects, especially for young students. I mean, it's aimed obviously at people that are in or about to be out of art school. And the whole point is stop thinking you've got to, get a job to get or you need experience to get a job and you got to get a job to get experience that is that is antique thinking you can get together with other creative people and create a project and get real life experience working with others and and bringing something to completion and obviously you're not going to get the same kind of experience like all of the same things and all of the same benefits of of working for a production company or something like that but at the same time there's a lot of things that you would learn there that you can learn going through a project and and like I said, projects are the new portfolio. And so that that whole thing is I'm just very passionate about that because it's so great. And I think that so much of the the brilliant creative people in the world are so hung up on this antique thinking and they're just they're just tripping over themselves and missing out on all these opportunities and and new ways that new media and all that sort of stuff is helping us just charge forward. It's very exciting. You know, we've been talking about music a lot and music analogs, you know, uh, to other creativity and the DIY scene, you know, which began with punk punk rock. Mm. That's what it's all about. Really do it yourself. DIY, get it out there Do your own comics, do your own uh, websites. Do, nowadays, you don't have to pay to publish your comic anymore. You can just put it on the web. That's right. And you can do what you got to do to drum it up. It doesn't have to end there. It can start there. There's, there's yeah, exactly. countless, that's, countless, that's countless comics be. that you run into at conventions that started as a webcomic, and then they published it. They started as a webcomic. Like, here's the, here's the routine I see over and over. They start as a webcomic. They get popular. They get traction. They keep going. Then they say, hey, my fans... I'd like to make a actual omnibus of the stuff that we've done. And so here's my Kickstarter page. Pay for that. Then you get the crowdfunding. And then you take it to the conventions. Then all of a sudden you're making money with it for real instead of just a little bit of money with the ads and a little bit of residuals and this sort of stuff. It's like that's the progression. And so the the DIY scene, it doesn't have to be just that. It can move into real actual income. Yeah, and we haven't even talked about the crowdfunding, crowdsourcing. Oh man, aspect, what an which exciting is changing new, the game severely. I mean, yeah. if I if this existed back in 2000 when I was doing my own comic, what a what a, a joy it would have been to sure. find people out there that would have supported me in this comic that I was doing. But I was working a nine to five job that I hated, coming home every day and working on my comic and every weekend, that sounds and familiar. every holiday, you know, <laughs> living living for my comic basically. Sure, and uh, it was it was great fun. 
But man, was it hard. Mm-hmm. It was difficult. It was very difficult. And it gave me a huge appreciation for what comic artists have to do. Well, and th- that sheer is amount of work why, that they do. That, that is why everybody doesn't do it. That is, that is the Absolutely, reason. Absolutely, because it's hard. Yeah, there's if it was the, easy, everybody would be doing it. Well, that's it. That well, it's have, a litmus test, right? It's it, the, it is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the filter. Having the people that have the grit to push through all of that, because there's, there's countless people that have legitimately good ideas. Mm-hmm. And they're all on DeviantArt. And there's, right. t- <laughs> and there's tons of garage bands, uh, but yeah. not every band is willing to get in a van and tour. You know, yeah, because yeah. there, there is a dark, a, gritty, yeah. shitty side to creative mediums that you have to push through there's i mean there is there's a, there's a darker side to things and it, I, don't, I don't mean like um you know ominous evil malevolent i just mean there's some shit you, have, you, you have gotta to be a fool with. basically yeah, exactly i mean there's a there, in the tarot card deck there's a card called the fool mm. and this is i learned this from alan moore by the way comics fans <laughs> this is a card where you have a jester and he's walking off a cliff this is this represents artistic endeavor this represents the idea of taking the leap of faith believing in yourself when everybody says, you suck, man, you can't play guitar, or you can't draw, you'll never be a comic artist, or what do you want to write that crap for? Why don't you go play basketball or whatever? Whatever you want to do, and artistically, you've got to be the fool. You've got to take a leap of faith in yourself and do something that people basically think you might be nuts for doing. Sure. You know? and All those critics, if, though, they're the hanged man. Ah, they're, another they're the tarot one, card. They're the ones that have... You know, indecision, they can't get their own shit started, so they'd rather just point at you rather than you know, point at their own foot hanging off the ceiling. That's a brilliant, brilliant uh, deduction. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's examine the rest of the tarot now, shall we? <laughs> the tarot yeah. cast. It reminds me of um, Kevin Smith has some pretty inspirational oh, right? talks, right? Talk about do it yourself. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, I was, I'm really heavily inspired by him, some of the mm-hmm. stuff that he talks about. Very and I think awesome. one of the things that he brings up, and I, you know, I can't, of course, quote it word for word, but he's like, start finding more people that say, why not? Find people that say, like, why not? Get those why not people in your life because they'll help support you. I can remember the first time that I read, bring it back to comics, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Hmm. And I've talked about this a couple times on the podcast. So if you've heard it before, well, get over it. I'm going to say it again. <laughs> that comic was so unbelievably inspiring to me. Not so much because I loved it, although I did. It was very entertaining as a viewer, but as a comic artist and writer uh, aspiring, I looked at that and I thought to myself, as I'm reading it, objectively, there's some weird, wacky shit in there that any sensible, normal-ass human being would be like, nah, that's that's too much. That's too off the wall. That's too goofy. I need to polish it, trim it down, and make it make more logical sense. And Brian Lee O'Malley was like, fuck it, we're going to do it anyway because it's crazy and I'm going to do it and it's my own project. Fuck you guys. And it works. Comics, man. And it the works. It's the beauty of it is that you can go off the wall and go crazy and still be wildly successful. I mean, it doesn't work for everybody, of course, but there's that. There's just the beauty of, like you said, we're our own worst critics. And I don't know how many amazing ideas that I may have had that I shot down because I thought, ah, it's just too weird. It's too off the wall. And that's the beauty of something like that in media like the Scott Pilgrim comics that teaches us and shows us that you can't have conventional success with seemingly wacky off the wall ideas. So as an amateur, there's a lot of self doubt. Does that self doubt ever go away at a certain point? No, not really. (laughs) I mean, if it does, you should be worried. If you're an artist of any kind and you get to the point where you totally believe your own greatness then you're full of shit, you yeah. know. Yep. Then, you, then apparently you're Rob Liefeld. <laughs> well, I don't know Rob, and I'm gonna take the uh, no, fifth on that one. Yeah, there but, was there was a lot of Liefeld hating going on in that big ass panel. Oh yeah, uh, I really missed am. most of that. Yeah. But um, uh, you know, I can understand why people feel that way. 
I wanted to talk about how I'm glad we've been talking about art and artists and what drives us because this started off as a talking about revelations of Zhang and the character that I talked about artifice is basically the archetypal artist. That's why I named him artifice, Mm -hmm. even though artifice doesn't quite mean art, right? But the whole, the whole journey that he goes on and there's, there's another main character too, who is not an artist. So he has sort of a flip side, but his whole journey is in the very first story he begins he learns that his art has gotten him into so much trouble, he's about to be put to death for it. And someone asks him in that story, what are you going to do now? You've just lost your home. You've lost your status. You've lost everything. You're kind of like if you would consider a, a medieval scribe who's cast out into the wilderness, you know, and he says, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to keep writing. And at this point in my life, I had just lost my job and I was thinking the same exact thing. I'm going to sure. do whatever I have to do so I can keep my art going, which is what artists do. It's the main thing artists do, whatever they have to do to keep their art going. And some of them even feed families while they're doing that, which is amazing to me. <laughs> yeah. But he has to go through this process where he he changes. He goes from being a writer of books to a writer of plays. And he travels with this uh, mystical troupe called the Glimmer Fair. And he ends up writing plays. And what he discovers is his plays are directly influencing people and, and events around him just in the same way that his writing was, but in a more profound and mystical manner. And it's about this journey that he takes from being the typical struggling artist to becoming someone who embraces the power of art to change the world. And he he himself changes as a result. And so I don't want to spoil anything in this story cycle, but it's all about art as sorcery and sorcery as art, because there's a quote in one of the stories that the first form of sorcery was cave painting. Art is magic. Art does transform lives. It transforms reality. Absolutely. If it wasn't for art, probably none of us would be here doing this podcast right now. Not at all. And this series of stories, yes, it's a fantasy. Yes, it's it's got your demons and your warriors and your wizards and your back alley stabbings and things like that. But it's also about art. And someone said, is this sword and sorcery? And I said, no, I coined a term for it, pin and sorcery. It's like the old saying, the pin is mightier than the sword. It's good. So... Artifice isn't your typical hero. You know, he's not a sword wielding badass or a, a wizard or anything like that. Or at least he doesn't start off as a, as a, a wizard. He is an intellectual. So I wanted to do this set of stories that would turn that whole idea of the, of the adventure fantasy, the sword and sorcery on its head. And so here's a guy who carries a quill instead of a sword. Mm-hmm. And he um, still has the power to affect the world around him in profound yeah. ways. Yeah. And in the end, that, that whole idea of artifice being a quill takes on a whole new significance because his canvas, not to give any spoilers, but his canvas ends up being the world itself. Mm. And, and at the, by the end of these things, by the end of these cycle, he is literally re- rewriting reality itself because his art has merged with the sorcery and his sorcery has merged with his art. Wow. So cool. it's just a big metaphor for art is magical, <laughs> magical boys and girls. <laughs> I thought you were going to say he invented graffiti. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, that came centuries later, I think. <laughs> well, John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast with us and, and sharing oh. your wisdom and talking about your new book. It is very exciting. And we just enjoyed your presence so much. It's been a real pleasure, man. Absolutely. So where can we find you online? John R. Fultz, that's F-U-L-T-Z dot com. You can find me there. You can also go to my Books of the Shaper Facebook page. Just type in Books of the Shaper on uh, Facebook. Also... 
You can find your books on Amazon. Just type yeah, in Yeah, go to Holtz Amazon and, yeah. and type in Revelations of Zang. Right. That's Z-A-N-G. Uh, you, you can go. We'll have a um, link in the show notes, of course. Yeah, Seven Princes, Seven Kings are the books of the Shaper. And Revelations of the Zang is the ebook, which is right now only available as an ebook. Kindle, Nook, uh, on both, it's on both of those. So for all of you ebook fans out there, this is this is what you've been waiting for. Now, are you are you are you hoping for that to get paper published as well at some point, or are you? I think it's very likely with... that it will be eventually, mm-hmm. but right now there are no existing plans other than just kind of an idea. Mm-hmm. Because I'll tell you, we, you know how we were talking about the do-it-yourself thing, and, and people are self-publishing and becoming successful that way. My agent actually said to me, you know, in between my second and third print novels, he was saying, "You got to get something out on Kindle. You got to put out something yourself." And I was like, well, you know, a couple of friends of mine just asked me if I wanted to do an e-project, you know, an e-book project. And he was like, yeah, do that, do that. So it's it's becoming valuable even for those writers who are out in the print in a big way mm-hmm. to do something that is catering to that e-book market. And, and though my novels are out as e-books as well as print, this is something that's just for the e-readers, which is, I think that's kind of cool. That is. Yeah, that's actually something I wanted to ask you about. You've been saying a lot that finding... Your agent and your editors was a huge step in the evolution of your of your craft. What exactly do they ask of you? Like once you hit that huge plateau, what next? Do they make sure that you're on task writing side projects or it depends on your agent. Some agents are more involved than others. Um, but I can tell you with my agent, who I think is one of the better agents from everything I've researched in my experience, he's a confidant. He's sort of a cheerleader. He is someone who can tell me what I'm working on, how to get it ready to sell and to pitch to Mm -hmm. publishers. But most importantly of all, he's the man with the Rolodex. He's the man who knows how to reach out and say, I have something here. You're going to want to publish it. Check this out. Read this manuscript. He's got the connections. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He is the magic man. And he told me when I first thought about signing with him, he said, all I can promise you, John, is a seat at the table, a seat at the table. And I had this vision of all these publishers sitting around this big table and I wasn't even allowed. And I'm looking at them through a glass wall going, <laughs> hello. And I'm like, that's all I want. That's all I've been trying to get for three years was a seat at the table. So not only did he give me a seat at the table, he got me a three book deal. And so, which is um, phenomenal. That, that's awesome. Yeah. But he constantly, he constantly gives me advice on, because I pitch my stuff to him before he pitches it to the publishers and he he helps me. The good thing is with Bob is that he used to be an editor for major houses for many, many years. So he knows editors. He knows how they think. Some agents I've heard are more standoffish. Others are way more involved, but I think I've got an agent that really balances that out. And like I said, he handles the business for me. Mm -hmm. I don't have to do that. I can focus on the creative and he gives me good creative advice when I ask for that too. But overall, he's the man who brings home the magic beans. You know, he's the guy who <laughs> gets it published. And that is so, so important, especially right. when you're not a guy who's from a publishing background and you're just a guy who nobody knows and you're, mm-hmm. you're writing something you believe in. So he got me a seat at the table and it turned out to be a pretty good seat. That's awesome. awesome. So perhaps maybe the first goal of a writer who wants to be successful industry wise Maybe isn't necessarily to get published, but maybe isn't necessarily find an agent. Well, you got to write it first. Well, yeah, obviously. Find, have write something it. If you don't have something, something that's going to blow an agent's mind when they read it, you'll never get an agent. Mm. So write it. Take that leap of faith. Be the fool. Leap off the cliff, mm. metaphorically, 
and write your book, write your novel. And then get, before you show it to an agent, show it to some other writers because they will save you from making a fool of yourself. They will, they will let you know what doesn't work. But once you've worked on your novel and you've got it to the point where you feel it is perfect, as perfect as it's going to get, then start querying agents and uh, go to actually go to conventions too. go to literary conventions. Mm. I went to the world fantasy convention and made a lot of good contacts there. That's a great convention to go to. The only thing about that is it pops around the world so much. I can't go every year Mm. like this year. It's in England. But um, when it was in San Jose, man, I was there next year. It was in or popped down to San Diego, Columbus, Ohio. So I went for three years in a row, made made a lot of good contacts there. But yeah, I mean, today, if you're not going the agent route, you probably have to go the self-publishing route, Mm -hmm. which may end up getting you an agent. But I think one of the things that people should understand about agents is that you don't really need an agent unless, one, you want to get a deal, or two, you've already got an offer for a deal. If you get an offer, then it'll be easy to get an agent. If a publisher comes to you and says, hey, you you self-published online and you have a thousand you know, you have like whatever you have 10,000 sales or whatever. We'd like to get you in print. That's when you need to call up an agent and say, look, I have a, I have a book deal now. Were they going to negotiate for I mean, an agent they, will get you more than you could get on your own. I assume, that's what because, they do. I assume that's because then they get more, right? They get they. Hey, my agent earns his 15% for sure. And I think any agent worth his salt, my agent promised me, he said, I'll get you at least 25% more than you would get on every project without an agent. So it's all value and I, added. I believe it's all value added right. at that point. It's, it's really yeah. all, all value added. And an agent is looking for the max deal that you can get. A creative person sometimes is just looking for any deal. Please publish my book. Sure, right. I'll take that crappy deal. It's validation. And that happens all the time. There's, a, there's a part of that that's validation, which is why. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So and, I know that we've been talking about a lot of this, but I, I would be remiss if you didn't tell us where we can find your graphic novel and comic books and stuff online as yes. well. As your oh, books. right. Primordia, which is my Stone Age fairy tale. That is on Comixology, and it's also Amazon has it if you want to order the hardcover. And as far as Zombie Tales and Cthulhu Tales, I did two eight-page stories for them, and they're in various omnibuses like zombie tales omnibus cthulhu tales omnibus the the main thing is if you want to see my comic book work go get primordia either on comiXology or on amazon cool. and, and, and you get we'll, to see we'll, the, we'll find and put that link in the show notes of course great and i gotta say shout out to roll Walinga who does amazing artwork on that book that book would not have been possible without roll so shout out to roll in in georgia awesome well thanks so much and, and i think that about wraps it up for this episode and i know we didn't say anything about this but this is episode 50 Hey man, I'm I'm honored to be here. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Double size spectacular. Yeah, it's very, very exciting. It's been a long road and we've gone through a lot of growth and changes and ups and downs. And the podcast has taken on a life of its own and really revealed what it wanted to become. And it's great. It's just so glad that we have the people we have and developed a good group of friends to hang out with and ever expanding and and just uh, so thanks for being part of episode 50 what a landmark very exciting awesome. thanks for having me man absolutely me too amazing. yeah thanks Hell for yeah, having me man. too thanks for Hell having yeah. me <laughs> you're welcome maybe next time not so rough but thanks for having me <laughs> <laughs> all right well thank you guys so much for listening to episode 50 of the geek life podcast and we will be back next week for episode 51 see you guys then Thanks for listening to Geek Life. We always love to hear from our listeners. 
please email us at geeklife at pandamanga.com with your questions, comments, and insights. Anyone interested in becoming a PM contributor, visit our contact page at contact.pandamanga.com and complete the form located there. Music has been provided by AirPlus Recordings. As always, links to the artists and songs featured on this episode are available in the show notes at podcast.pandamanga.com. If you'd like more information about AirPlus Recordings, visit airplusrecordings.com. This is The Brian, and we'll see you next time. I'm sorry, man. I'm not trying to touch you and stuff. No, no, that's cool. You can touch but all I'd you want. A, I mean, I'd be, a, I mean, I'd be okay if you know. <laughs> no, touch all you want. <laughs> <laughs>